Well, friends, I want to uh, just underline how difficult this time was for the church in Acts. Uh, They were seeing some great things, some positive things, some important things. But let's remember there was terrible persecution. And that persecution was so bad that in a similar way to what we're seeing on our TV screens at the moment, they were fleeing across borders to other countries in fear of their lives. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, Ian, that's not really my problem today. That's not our problem here. Um, But maybe if you're wondering why the church, particularly in the West, isn't growing. Stay tuned because I'm going to seek to answer that today. As we've said, it wasn't automatic that people uh, would start sharing the faith that had made them persona non grata in their homeland. Um, In spite of this, however, we see the church expanding. And in chapter 13, actually getting ready for a push into other areas to plant more churches. How did they do that? What were some of the characteristics of this church in Antioch that we can copy today? What are the keys to the growth that we long to see? A praying church. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, verse 12, uh, sorry, uh, chapter 12, verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. I think it's significant, friends, that this church in Antioch had such a a culturally diverse leadership uh, in keeping with the population in their city. And it's probably a good question for us to ask whether we're fostering leaders from different cultural backgrounds. Well, the Holy Spirit sent a message to this church, probably through one of the prophets there, which propelled it into a new era of planting and missionary involvement. It happened while they, probably the whole church, were worshipping the Lord and fasting. Fasting. There's a word we don't hear a lot in Protestant churches these days, but I think it's making a comeback. The church's prayer was accompanied by fasting, both when the church received the message and then when they commissioned um, Barnabas and Saul to their mission. You know, just reflecting on this, there must have been much more work to be done in Antioch. They would have had a lot going on, a lot of needs and everything like that. Um, Just God asking 
the church to release some of their key leaders for planting new churches and missions. And to their credit, the church did so. No hesitation. That is how important planting new churches and obedience to the Spirit are. So as the test, how are our individual prayer lives? What opportunities do we take to pray together for our church, our local community, our nation? And are there times when we're listening to God for his next step? Individually and as a church. In the late 1850s, three ministers in Ulster said this about their churches. First minister said, Our condition was deplorable. We were dead cold, prayerless, worldly. Two times I tried a prayer meeting with elders but failed. The people did not not only want to pray, they were almost hostile towards prayer meetings. They thought that we were doing fine and I was unnecessarily disturbing them. The second minister said this, There seemed great coldness and deadness. I had preached the gospel faithfully earnestly and plainly for 11 years yet it was not known to me that a single individual had been converted the third said this the congregation was altogether Laodicean this spiritual state was depressing and hopeless and in this atmosphere a man by the name of James McCulkin commenced a prayer meeting every Friday night beginning September 1857 with three other young Irishmen. The first convert in response to their prayers came on January the 1st, 1858. And then there were five praying. By the end of the year, 50 were praying together. And through 1858... Innumerable prayer meetings started just all popping up and revival was a common theme of preachers. On March 14, 1859, James McCulkin and his praying friends organised a prayer meeting at the Hohogal Presbyterian Church. Such a large crowd gathered that the building had to be cleared because the balcony was starting to give way from the weight of the crowd. And outside, in the chilling rain, as a layman preached with great power, hundreds knelt in repentance. And that was the first of many moments of mass conviction of sin. Around the Kells area, a hundred, over a hundred separate prayer meetings per week started in homes, in schools, in barns and workplaces, all run by non-pastors. The revival spread and within weeks, 10,000 were converted. One person said, for the last three weeks, it has been one continual Pentecost. Wow. 
almost every street in Belfast saw conversions. Large open-air meetings of about 25,000 were held. And the revival that was taking place in Ireland soon spread across the channel into Wales and Scotland and England where an even larger harvest of souls took place. All because four people started a prayer meeting. At the beginning of Paul's remarkable three missionary journeys is this, prayer and fasting. And yet the Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers said, prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. This is a key, friends, to the growth of the church. Have we forgotten that? So much for for us here in Acts. Secondly, this was a church planting church. Verse 4, the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyrus, Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. And then skipping forward to Acts 14, verse 21. After proclaiming the message in Derby and establishing a strong core of disciples, they retraced their steps to Lystra, then Iconium, and then Antioch, putting grit in the lives of the disciples, urging them to stick with what they'd begun to believe and not quit making it clear to them that it wouldn't be easy. Anyone signing up for the kingdom of God has to go through plenty of hard times. Paul and Barnabas handpicked leaders in each church. After praying, their prayers intensified by fasting, they presented these new leaders to the master to whom they entrusted their lives. We see in this passage from Acts 14 that Antioch is a church-planting church and that this is normal. You know, we're surrounded by the replication of life. Our kids grow up, get married and have children of their own. Sheep have lambs. Apples produce new trees full of apples. Yet there are sadly churches that may have been around for a 100 years that have never planted another church. And do we somehow think that is okay, even after a series in the book of Acts? Whenever that happens, or whether that happens rather, as a result of of time of worship, prayer and fasting, or not, the command to make disciples in all nations remains. And one of the best ways to do that is to plant new churches. Mike Breen puts it like this. If you make disciples, you always get the church. But if you make a church, you don't always get disciples. The following ad once occurred in a London newspaper. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold long months of complete darkness, 
constant danger, safe return, doubtful. The ad was signed by Sir Ernest Shackleton, Antarctic explorer. And amazingly, this ad drew thousands of respondents eager to sacrifice everything for the prospect of meaningful adventure. You know what? That's true in churches too. I want to let you in on a secret this morning, and that is that typically 38% of those in Australian churches would at least probably be involved in planting a church if they had the opportunity. Some of us definitely want to be involved in planting a church, but just waiting for a chance. So almost four in ten of you at the numbers, <laughs> are carrying around this clandestine hope that someone, someday, would ask you to be involved in more effectively um, reaching outsiders through planting a new church. And you're just waiting for someone to ask you to join them on that adventure. How does that work? Let's consider a couple of churches. Alpha Community Church and Beta Christian Church. Each of them has 100 attenders. Uh, They're both engaged in their local community and they're both growing. But Alpha Community Church sees growing as success while Beta is much more focused on a vision for sending. Well, through effective local outreach, each of these churches welcomes 10 new believers each year. And each church does this for 100 years. So after 100 years and a a couple of significant building programs, Alpha Community Church has grown to 1,100 people. Who wouldn't consider that success? By contrast, Beta Christian Church still meets in a renovated version of its small 100-year-old building. For the last century, Beta has taken a different strategy, considering throughput well-made disciples to be a better measure of success than size. They have the policy of commissioning 20 people to plant a new church whenever their attendance reaches 120 That's been around about every two years. And additionally, this is important, the churches that they plant are encouraged to do the same. And so, after 100 years, Beta Church still only has 100 people. What have they been doing for 100 years? But in contrast to Alpha's 1,100 disciples... Beta now has an extended family of over 107 million disciples. 107 million missionaries. Wow. And that's why Paul did what he did in Acts. As Bonhoeffer reminds us, the church is only the church when it exists for others. So there are three implications for us today from this church at Antioch. 
church planting is a part of their vision, prayers and planning. Planning? No doubt this was a special time of commissioning of Barnabas and Saul. Saul had been at the church for a year. But I don't think this just suddenly came out of the blue, you know, dropped on them by the Holy Spirit. The commissioning was something that they had been working towards. But now the Holy Spirit instructs them, it's time, you need to go. And I say this because equipping leaders is the primary focus of church planning churches, just like Beta Church. Equipping leaders is the primary focus. Imagine with me, just for a moment, that Northgate Church was working towards planting in, I don't know, name a suburb, Narrowena, um, in a year's time with a group of 20. And that would mean training some more preachers, another worship team, uh, three connect group leaders and so on. And of course, do you remember the seven chairs? Um, That we would be enthusiastic about moving into chairs six and seven, serving in ministry and leading in ministry. Let's flip that. Imagine Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul, whatever, whatever you want to call him. Um, it's both in this passage. So imagine them saying no to serving and leading. Saul saying, look, I've only been a Christian for 14 years, guys. You know, like, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm ready yet. No three missionary journeys No establishing of the church in non-Jewish cultures. We probably wouldn't be meeting here today if that was the case. If Saul had said, no, not ready yet. All because they said no to serving and leading. The church at Antioch was equipping leaders for church planning. They had a bigger a much bigger vision than just running a church service. And they were prepared, even delighted, to give away their best people for planting new churches and reaching the lost. And friends, this has everything to do with Northgate Church. This was a church plant for crying out loud. You were planted to plant more churches. All right? Be a beta church, not an alpha church. That's what it means to be a church like in the book of Acts. Churches of Christ is always talking about being a church like in the book of Acts. Thirdly, a church of experiencing spiritual opposition. Verse 6. They travelled throughout the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You're a child of the devil. 
and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind, and for a time you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him from the, by the head. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed about the teaching of, of the Lord, about the Lord. In Paphos, Saul and Barnabas encounter a sorcerer, Bar-Jesus, or Elymas. And Elymas faced a stern rebuke from Paul because of his adverse influence on the proconsul of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus. He presumably opposed Paul and Barnabas because their ministry jeopardised his standing with the proconsul. And Paul has some very severe words for Elymas. Luke is careful to say that he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he uttered them. It wasn't just, you know, like having a tanty or anything like that. This was what God wanted him to say to Elymas. And it was an example of the use of the prophetic gift, communicating a direct and specific word of God, of judgment from God. Verse 12, Sergius Paulus not only sees this miracle, but he's also amazed about the teaching of the Lord. Um, This is what it means to be effective evangelists. So let's reflect on that for our context. Do we pray for miracles in the lives of our unsaved friends and family? physical, financial, whatever it is? And do we pray against spiritual opposition that we may encounter in sharing the gospel with them? Do we know how to do that? A church experiencing spiritual opposition is normal when that church is effective in reaching the lost. It is a normal experience in revival. Let me give you another example. The drug cartel controlled Colombia. It was the richest and most well-organised criminal organisation in history. Kidnappings and torture were commonplace. And up to 15 murders were occurring every day. Bribery controlled the banks, the businesses, the justice system, police, political system and the anti-drug units. There were only 50,000 Christians out of a population of about 2 million in the city of Cali. Yet so desperate were they to see transformation of this mess that they lived in that half of them, 25,000, turned up at the first citywide prayer meeting. And one startling result from the prayers of those 25,000 was that 48 hours following the event, the headline from the newspaper was no homicides. For the first time, in as long as anybody could remember, 24 hours had passed without anybody being killed. And prayer started to gather momentum across the city. 
Corruption also took a major hit in the following four months as 900 cartel-linked police officers were fired from the force and the first cartel leader was arrested. Julio Riabal preached to a packed stadium, gave an invitation for people to place their faith in Jesus and between 4,000 and 5,000 people responded. At this same time, there were many notable miracles. Deaf ears opening, a boy getting up out of his wheelchair and others leaving their canes behind. Seven drug cartel leaders were arrested. Intimidation, then death threats from those in power gathered pace against Julio Rubal until December 13, 1995, while he was walking to a Minister's Association meeting, he was shot dead. But breakthrough had already happened and was strengthened by his death. In early 1998, one church, Christian Centre of Love and Faith, had nearly 35,000 attenders, with church growth coming almost entirely from new believers. During 1998, the number of churches increased by 50%. They grew from 214 to over 300 churches. And mission outreaches were conducted by these churches. And one notable location was Potosi, Bolivia, where during the summer of 2001, there were 35,000 decisions for Christ, 20% of the population. Friends, a church that is bearing kingdom fruit will experience spiritual opposition, intimidation, threats, maybe even murder. Are we prepared to pay the price and battle in prayer like this city of Cali to see breakthrough from the strongholds and thousands come to Jesus? A church that sees revival break out. Chapter 13, verse 48. When the non-Jewish outsiders heard this, they could hardly believe their good fortune. They honoured God's word. Uh, Sorry, that all who were marked out for real life put their trust in God. They honoured God's word by receiving that life. And this message of salvation spread like wildfire through the region. I've said a couple of times that this church in Acts was experiencing relentless systematic persecution. Acts 7, the stoning of Stephen, wasn't just a a one-off, but a window into why so many Christians packed up and streamed across borders into other countries. But as I look at the Bible and as I look at history, It seems like these difficult times are often the prelude to revival, to renewal. Maybe it's the rock-bottom desperation like we saw in the city of Cali, a city in the grip of evil. The Cali churches were hoping, oh, maybe 2,000 people might turn up at this citywide prayer meeting. They caught 25,000, half of all of the Christians, because... They were hungry for change and they were desperate for more of God. 
You know, I don't entirely understand it, but it seems like chaos and persecution and crises and transition are often God's invitation to renewal. I see that in the Bible. I see that in history. I see that in churches that I've worked with. The question for us this morning is, will we open the invitation? Will we say yes to God's RSVP? Mark Sayers has tried to um, give us an outline of what happens in the renewal process. And maybe we can ask the question, where are we? The first phase is holy discontent, a deep satisfaction with the low state of our faith, the church and the culture. We look at the world and we see injustices, uh, sinfulness, brokenness and lostness. And we become discontent with the state of the church, not in a critical nitpicking sense, but a genuine hunger for the church to be released into its full potential and power in that broken world. And then that leads into a deep dissatisfaction with the state of our own lives and the level of our own faith. No longer pointing fingers outward, we realise our own inadequacy and we cry out to God for change. Change us. Start the renewal in our hearts. The second is preparation. Not a program, not a campaign, but in the hidden places, in obscurity, in the early mornings or the late evenings of connecting with God, often drenched with tears. Quiet spaces with God's spirit and his word and conviction of how far short we fall. Phase three, contending. Moving from consumption and passivity to contending for God's presence to come in power. Contending means to stretch or to fight for something. We come to the point where we realise that our lives, our faith, our churches, our culture cannot be changed by anything else but the presence of God. No politician's going to do it. No other outside help. Only God. And this occurs through the shift of contending prayer. Crying out for God to move. And then formation. Holy patterns. Practices and habits that help us to live vital Christian lives. To focus on the power of God's presence. Spiritual disciplines that have shaped the church. Prayer, the reading of scripture. Christian community. Phase five, the remnant. A group of individuals being renewed by God come together to contend for God to move powerfully. 
a remnant of believers, renewed believers, hungry for God to move, joined together. And then renewal. As God moves, new life flows into the person or people of God. New vitality breaks out. God's presence comes with power. Ministry is quickened and empowered. And there is a time of growth and advance as the kingdom moves forward, refreshing his people and those around them. And lastly, revival. Renewal goes viral, spreading across churches and regions and cities and denominations and countries. The church is significantly advanced. Ground is taken for the gospel and positive change brings a new foundation of health and kingdom fruit. Uh, That's from Reappearing Church. Friends, renewal and growth are possible for any church. But it's pretty obvious if we want to be a church like a church in the book of Acts, like the church in Antioch, there are some things that may need to shift. To pray, first of all. God, do it again, here and now. But maybe we've relegated these Acts accounts to the dusty archives of history, scarcely believing that we could match it with the rock stars of church planting and mission, Saul and Barnabas. Or that revivals may be for Ulster or Carly, but not for Australia today. Oh, oops, there have been 70 revivals in Australia including in this century. Or maybe we just don't want the inconvenience of church services spilling into Mondays, as they've done in many revivals, or other aspects of our neatly ordered lives turned over. Maybe we figure that the price is just too high. Or... Maybe you are ready. Maybe the tears and the pain of the last year have made you ready for renewal. Hungry for God. More conscious of your own sin. Desperate to see your neighbours and friends and family connect with Jesus. And for this church to be a vibrant hub for planting new churches. A.W. Tozer wrote these profound words. Anything God has ever done, he can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. Will you join me in prayer? I invite you to just make this prayer your own 
today. A very short, simple prayer. But a profound one. Holy Spirit, I am ready for renewal. Start with me and work out from there. May the gospel spread like wildfire in our region. In Jesus' name, amen.